Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. I'm Nathan. Happy to see you here. We're going to wrap up a nine-week series on the wisdom of stability today. I'm not going to try to exegete a specific passage, but I do think the notes will be helpful. So if you like, raise your hand and get a notes page, and uh, hopefully this will help you to kind of follow along as we tie up some loose ends and try to bring some application to a long focus that we've had on the, the topic of the wisdom of stability. I've titled this final message, Where Do We Stay From Here?, partly because I think that's kind of clever, and, and also because my hope is that after spending so much time focusing as a community and preaching and thinking and talking in our home groups about stability, I'm hoping that this is causing us to think of staying as an important part of going. I'm hoping that we're seeing the connection between the two. I'm hoping we're seeing that the root of something is directly connected to the fruit of something, and ultimately to realize that movement that helps us, movement that helps the world and doesn't hurt the world, is movement that is born out of a season of stability. It's movement that comes from, is born from, is rooted in a time of staying, abiding, my wife works as a birth doula, and so one of the things we're constantly talking about in our house is the birth of babies. And most of the time, even though uh, this movement of birth appears, from my perspective, to be very intense, painful, um, difficult, the result is beautiful. And the reason that the result of the movement of birth is beautiful is because the baby is ready to be born. They've been actively becoming. They've been forming for like 40 weeks, and now they're ready to come. Birth is a kind of movement that everybody celebrates. Everybody sees it as good. And in the rare occasion when the celebration is overshadowed by sadness or disappointment or grief or fear, it's often because the baby wasn't ready to be, to be born. And the word that they use for this kind of thing is really interesting. It's called, she was born premature. She wasn't ready to come yet. Her lungs hadn't formed fully. Body hadn't developed to the extent that it needed to. She needed to get stronger. She needed to get more mature. Be ready to be born. Be ready to come into the world. So staying is just so strongly connected with going. Stability kind of counterintuitively, is so important in our talking about mobility or movement. If you place too little emphasis on stability, your life will just get swept into the dominant culture current. You'll be carried along like this little raft in a river. And the current of our culture pulls us in specific directions. It pulls us towards the shallow, and it pulls us towards the busy, and it pulls us towards... Um, the crowded, these are the three soils that Jesus identifies as unfruitful, as not conducive to growing a, a plant that does bear fruit. It's too shallow, it's too busy, it's too crowded. Placing too little importance on stability results in a life with no roots. And if there's no roots, there's no fruit. Underemphasizing stability which, in case you're new, is just this, this idea of remaining faithful to a place, staying with a community, being here. Underemphasizing stability results in a life that is constantly moving around but is rarely making any difference. 
On the other hand, you can swing the pendulum too far the other direction as well. I, re I realize that. If you over-establish stability as a fixed rule, it becomes too permanent. Over-establishing stability leads to an over-realized eschatology, a view of the end that is too fixed right here. And it ultimately leads you to a place where you ignore the reality of death. You think it's just all about here. We can underemphasize stability and we can make no lasting impact in the 20 or 80 or 100 years that we have here by underestimating the importance of stability. At the, on the other hand, we can overestimate or overemphasize um, the value of stability to the degree that we think it's all about the 50 or the 80 or the 100 years right here. We ignore the the truth that there's actually something more than just this. Right? So the big idea that I've been trying to communicate in a number of ways over the last several weeks is this. Stability is provisional. Stability is provisional. Stability provides the context for good growth and meaningful movement. Both are rooted in a season of stability, in a place of faithfulness, in a, in a atmosphere of consistency. It's a value and a discipline that we need to remind ourselves uh, so that we don't have to wander around looking for God. We don't have to run when things get hard. There's great wisdom in stability. It's not a message we typically hear in our culture because we're just consumed with constant movement and change. Or put another way, this is the way we tried to roll it out last week. There are two big kinds of movement in Scripture, two big calls, two big themes. One movement is the call to stay. And the, the call to stay is rooted in the being of God. God doesn't change. He remains the same. He is consistent, reliable. The call to stay is rooted theologically in the being of God. And then the other call is the call to go. And that's rooted in the work of God. The always engaging, coming to earth, incarnation, reaching across borders, breaking boundaries and boxes, constantly moving work of God. It's not either or, stability or movement. It's both and. They go together. Whether you're staying or whether you're going, it's really important that you know why. Without a why, either staying or going can become sort of unhealthy. The value of stability in the historic Christian tradition, says stay, but then it asks the question, to what purpose? And a similar question can be asked of any kind of movement. Go, Jesus says, but he gives them a purpose. Teach them everything I have said to you, right? Either both stability and movement need to have a reason, need to have a purpose. Sometimes that reason is very specific. I had a meeting this, just this last week with somebody. The conversation kind of wound its way to, well, do you think you should, do you think you should move? And, um, and the person said, no, I don't think we should move. I think we should stay right here. And I was so moved, emotionally moved, because the reason that they gave was they named two kids in our community that aren't even their own kids. And they're like, I want to see these kids grow up. I've been invested in these kids. I want to continue to invest in these kids. It was inspiring to me. The reason was very specific for why they wanted to stay. And then I had another meeting with somebody who felt like they really were being called to 
a different kind of work in a different kind of place. And it wasn't specific. It was pretty vague, and yet it was still this powerful sense that I don't know exactly what it is, but I sense that I'm to go. So today what I want to try to do is offer some guidance, not like hard, fast rules, um, but essentially it's the question, should I stay or should I go? And I realize that's a personal question, and that's a question that's probably best handled in a conversation with a few people. I'm not in a sermon, but what I hope to do is provide some big picture guidelines that then can provide some really specific conversations in your homes later today, in your home groups later this week. Um, And I want to say up front that there's just no way to create a one-size-fits-all situation checklist, right? So almost everything I say today, there's a valid and credible objection to. (laughs) You might say, but except for this, and you probably would be right. So I recognize that. My hope is that uh, I'll offer a few truths that might serve as helpful signposts in your process of trying to figure out that puzzle, should I stay, should I go, or whatever it is that you're kind of wrestling with at this point in your life. The question, um, should I stay or should I go, at least when addressed in a, in a sermon in, within the context of a Christian church like ours, is essentially and fundamentally, this is important, it is a question about spiritual discernment. That's really what we're talking about, spiritual discernment. Since for the Christian, this is about spiritual discernment, we got to understand essentially how this happens in real life. So a beautiful reality is this. You can discern what God wants for your life. You can. You can know the will of God for your life, simply stated, by tuning into three powerful inputs. And they are the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the community of God. Friends, we are thousands of years into a tradition of real people, men and women like us, who have with confidence and peace discerned the direction that God wants for them to go, and they've done it in this way, through the Word of God, through the Spirit of God, and through the community or the church of God. Let's kind of hop through those briefly. Um, We can read the Word of God. That's incredible. Historically, it's unprecedented. We've never been in a place where the accessibility to the Bible is so widespread. You can hear the best Bible teachers online this afternoon. They're available. The best uh, stuff ever written on scripture is now available. Even stuff that's like 1,500 years old, it's accessible. We buy those Bibles that we hand out. Those are $2 a piece, hardback. I mean, isn't that crazy? It's so accessible. We can read the Word of God. Secondly, we can receive guidance from the Holy Spirit. I'm talking now about this mystical, often less than tangible sense of direction that we receive from the Spirit of God, spiritual direction. And third, we can wrestle with one another about what we should do. We can gain perspective and insight and advice from each other. We can read the word. We can receive guidance from the Spirit. We can wrestle through our questions with one another. It might be helpful to put this kind of visually, so let me offer a couple of pictures. And I put them on the backside of your notes. The first picture is the picture of a house. I'm saying the same thing, just in a different way now. The house represents community. This is your church. This is your family. This is where the day-to-day context of life happens. This is where the day-to-day questions 
about life happen. This is where it takes place. The house is built on the foundation of God's word. This is the truth. The community or the church is built on the truth of God's word. The word is the authority on which the community stands. The, the, the word is the authority that gives legitimacy to the community. It defines it. And then the whole ecosystem affecting the rest of it, symbolized in the picture by this sun, is the real presence of God's spirit. Spiritual discernment happens under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says blows wherever it wants to. Blows wherever it wants to. It's like unpredictable. The picture of a house built on a rock is one of the really familiar sort of word pictures that Jesus himself gives um, in one of his more famous teachings. Um, He talks about in Matthew's gospel, chapter 7, in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus says that those who hear his words and put them into practice are like a man who builds his house on a rock. So clearly Jesus' emphasis in that teaching is on putting his teachings into practice. But as he's teaching that, he builds this really cool image that I think we can learn from here, this, this visual of stability and confidence even in the face of life's storms. So whether God is calling you to stay or God is calling you to go, the bigger picture is you can know. You can know with confidence the will of God. Now, there are some basic requirements associated with these three inputs of truth. Here's here's the first basic requirement. you got to believe that the Bible is the word of God. In order for that picture to have any kind of practical um, influence in your life, in other words, you got to have a view of Scripture that is essentially that it is the Word of God, and as the Word of God, it has an uncommon level of authority over your life and mine. You should ground your life on the Word of God. There is no better foundation. There is no stronger basis on which to build your life. To a significant degree, God's will for your life has already been made very clear in Scripture. Right? The moral ethics, if nothing else, of the Bible reveal a very clear way to live and purpose for living. And beyond just the morality of it, there's this revelation of uh, this, this uh, idea that there's a creator who wants a relationship with you through his son Jesus who has made a way into a um, relationship with God possible. That's amazing and that's a huge part of our purpose for life and it's revealed right there in scripture. The basic requirement to believe that the Bible is God's word. A second basic requirement is to be open to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You need to believe, in order for this to make any difference in your life, that God is actually personally interested in you. He actually cares, knows you, and wants some certain specific things for your life and is willing to walk you through the process of discovering those things. In other words, there's not just general revelation from scripture like thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal that applies to all things or even Jesus's great commandment love God love people I mean that's enough to go on but it's even better than that because the the spirit of God history tells us can direct us into those unique to you kinds of situations you should take that job you should call that person The way it works for me sometimes is somebody that I haven't thought about in four weeks, I think about constantly. I've learned, it took me a long time, and I still drop the ball half the time. I'll see somebody and I'll be like, I've been thinking about you for four days, right? Um, Yeah, specific, you should just be quiet. 
you should not talk right now. Like the specific guidance of the Holy Spirit. And then a third requirement is a commitment to community. You're not trying to figure out God's will for your life in isolation. That doesn't work. You weren't meant to do this alone. Why not? Because you've got blind spots. Your own passions deceive you. Your heart cannot be trusted all of the time. Right? We need others to help us discern God's will, and this is not an option. The people in your home group, if that's going to be an effective context for you to discern God's will, they matter. And what they think about the puzzle you're trying to solve in your life, the problem you're facing, the grief you're experiencing, it's not optional. If nine out of ten of them think that this is a bad idea, this is a bad idea. Right? The commitment to community is what part of what builds the community into this powerful source of discerning God's will for your life. We even had people come over to our house and invite others and said, I've been offered this position. It means A, B, C, and D. It changes F, G, H, whatever. It just all the, here, they roll it all out. Would you guys pray with us? And we'll leave with the decision that we all come to together. A phenomenal commitment to community, right? There are several examples of the church seeking direction in the Bible as a community. Probably the best example is in Acts chapter 15. I don't have time to read any of the texts today, but the first church council recorded is in Acts chapter 15. The Jesus movement is exploding, and it is extending beyond just Jews. For the first time, non-Jewish people are embracing the person and the teachings of Jesus. And the question on the table is, what about all those non-Jewish Christians? Do they need to do all the Jewish stuff? And those are some pretty big deals. Historically, things that mark inclusion. Very personal things, like circumcision. So here's what happens. The church leadership gathers together, they study the prophets, they pray together, and they reveal, they come out with this judgment. And this is so fascinating to me. This is what they say. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And then they deliver their judgment. It's fascinating, isn't it? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and therefore we come into this place of confidence and peace about a judgment affecting the salvation of the rest of the world. This is commitment to community, openness to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, confidence and and belief in, in the Bible as the Word of God, resulting in this massive level of like, assurance and peace. Hey, maybe they're wrong, but there's this experience that, uh, that leads them to these places of saying, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This is the way we should, we should move forward. All right. Um, so belief in the Bible, openness to the Spirit, commitment to community. Let me show you quickly just one other picture, and it kind of supplements the house picture. It's very similar. Uh, John Wesley, a missionary from England in the 1700s to the New World, the United States, before there was the United States. He comes over, starts the Methodist Church, which by the year 1900 is the biggest church in America. He talks a lot about discerning the will of God because he does a lot of things that are kind of outside of the box. For instance, he preached outside of the church. This was, this was not okay, right? He's going to coal mines, and he's preaching to people outside. So he's always being challenged. Does God want you to do that? So he has to think a lot, pray about, write about, how do you discern the will of God? His students take his teachings. They kind of consolidate them into this really cool little helpful tool that's called now the Wesleyan 
quadrilateral. And it's a quadrilateral, not a square, because here are the parts. The bottom is the word of God. That is the most significant piece. That's why it's the foundation. It's why the line is longer than the rest of them. The word of God. On one side, then, is tradition. And it can also, you could also write community there. Um, this is not just the practical, present community of the church. This is also the historic church going all the way back to Jesus. So discernment comes through the, will of, or the word of God. Discernment of God's tru truth and God's will comes through tradition or community, the church, both present and historic. And then on the right side, a third way that we can discern the truth is through our own experience. And here he, Wesley's talking about discerning the Holy Spirit, right? The sense of the presence of God calling, pushing, guiding uh, us around. Not always very tangible, often subjective, but this sort of spiritual, supernatural sense of call. And then, so at this point, it's very much like the house diagram, but then Wesley adds this, which I think is powerful. It reflects a change in the dominant worldview of the time from medieval thought, which is, it's true because the church says it's true. The world is flat, end of story, right? To now more of a modern worldview, which is, hey, you have a brain. You can use it. It might be true because it makes sense to you. Let's go ahead and, and give people this. There's this. It was a huge, much bigger than Wesley, uh, but this huge movement in the world. Uh, Rene Descartes, like 100 years before Wesley, says, I think therefore I am. So everybody's like waking up to this idea like, I can use my brain. I don't have to do exactly what some institution tells me to do, right? So Wesley adds reason as a legitimate means of discerning the will of God. Now he's careful to emphasize that the word of God is, is the final authority in the whole process. So you can draw little lines down from tradition, reason, and experience. If tradition doesn't jive with God's word, Hmm, maybe tradition got off track there. If my experience with the Holy Spirit doesn't line up with the character of God, I probably should question my experience. If reason doesn't line up with the Word of God, then I should submit my reason to the Word. An example of this that I thought of this morning, sorry about that, is um, at Christmas, an example of where one's reason might not line up with what the Word says. At Christmas, uh, if you were to tell a nine-year-old, Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The nine-year-old's going to say, I don't think that's true, right? <laughs> uh, I disagree. Uh, rationally, it feels, it, it seems to me rationally, it's better to receive than to give because it's clearly advantageous to me. So that is an immature rationale being confronted with a much more developed, sophisticated reasoning from Christ that says, you know what, though? Actually, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So that's just a, an example, real life, actually, but an example of where we would submit our less mature rationale to the wisdom of God in his word. We're like, man, this doesn't even look like it works, but I'm going to submit to it, which, by the way, sidebar, is one of the main themes of the Psalms. Why do the rich get away with murder? Why do the poor grieve all day long? So we've wrestled with this for a while, but still, this is the, the, the message of Wesley in regard to discerning the will of God is to filter all of this through the word of God. The word of God becomes a filter, in a sense, for these other 
legitimate means of understanding. Now, what's so interesting about this is Wesley is arguing for the use of reason, and it's a new thing. This is like, what? We've not heard this before. We've always just done what the church has told us. But now, 300 years after Wesley, after 300 years of modernism, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, uh, scientific method, now we've made discernment, discernment all about reason, haven't we? It's all about reason now. We've swung the pendulum completely the other direction. Wesley says, hey, by the way, in this process of discerning, should I stay, should I go? I'm going to use my brain. Is that cool? We've swung the other direction, and that's like, should I stay, should I go? That's, that's the only thing we're even considering most of the time. Typically, we're trying to find the right answer to really challenging relational questions, spiritual questions, employment questions, without a relationship with the Holy Spirit that really has any effect and without any kind of deference to the tradition of the church. We don't check in with the Spirit. We don't read what the historic church has done in situations where violence has broken out within the congregation or whatever the situation may be, which leaves you with only reason. And if you're trying to discern the direction you should go using only reason, then basically it looks like this. You get a piece of paper, you put a line down the middle, pros on one side, cons on the other. You give a numerical value to each reason. You add them up at the bottom, and whatever's the bigger number, that's what you do. Because it's only about reason. But you know and I know that the real issues that we're really wrestling with, the real questions that we have, the real puzzles we're trying to solve, the real need for clarity that we are looking for is so much more than just a rational thing. Am I right? What if you could have a sense of divine direction about that challenge, about that issue? Wouldn't that be good to know? Wouldn't that be wise to discover? Absolutely. So it's so much more than just reason. Uh, in other words, spiritual discernment is a reality that we read about in Scripture and all through the history of the church. The truth is God does guide people. God does lead people to know his will. The problem is, in Western culture, for the last several hundred years, we've been taught to distrust the supernatural so much that we don't even know how to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And in the last 50 years, we've been influenced so powerfully to distrust any kind of religious organization, we don't even check in with the historic church. We're too skeptical about it. It's too whatever. It's just too scary for us. So most of us, and I would include myself in this group, we are relatively unskilled at discerning God's direction for our life. We're pretty unskilled about it, at least when we compare ourselves to the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, who are at or on a regular basis uh, perceiving clarity from God about the way that we should go. Friends, we have to grow in this knowledge. We can grow in this knowledge. We have to. Our lives are too complicated uh, to, to not have this kind of ability to discern spiritual direction. We've got to uh, grow in this area. Because we're always being confronted by challenging situations. Um, and we're, we're being asked to make decisions. And they're way more complicated. Sometimes they are as simple as, should I stay or should I go? So understanding, that was a big qualification. Understanding that this whole conversation, should I stay or should I go? It really falls within the category of spiritual discernment. Okay, So understanding that's where it lives. Let me just end now by giving a few good reasons 
why you should stay or go, and a few not-so-good reasons why you should stay or go. All right? I'll hustle through this. A good reason to stay or go is a call from God. It is the most common good reason for staying or for going that we find in the Bible. You, it is the, uh, the uh, obedient response to the words, and God said. It is the response of the, to the call of God. In the Old Testament, this comes through prophets. It comes through angels. You can also translate angels messengers. Maybe they're angelic. Sometimes they are. Other times, like supernatural. Sometimes they're just people. They're just messengers. In the New Testament, the call from God comes through the Son of God, Jesus, through his apostles, those he chooses to continue his work. And very practical instruction is delivered through these people. For instance, in Acts chapter 7, you all will stay and take care of the widows. Later in Acts, you three will go with Paul and start new churches. So it's a call from God. Very good reason to stay or go. Sometimes people say, what, when did you move to Lincoln? Why did you come to Lincoln? The answer is, well, we were invited to start a church in Lincoln in 2004. I was captivated by a story in the Bible. I was sensing this spiritual, this almost, I can't figure it out, sort of pull from the spirit to, to do this. And then gratefully, Finally, the call of God was clarified literally with a phone call from a guy in our network who's like, hey, would you consider planting a new church in Lincoln? And it's funny because I wasn't their first choice. I was their second choice. The first choice guy said no. <laughs> so uh, you know, they got it wrong the first time. They, they came around to it. Right, so we, we got to figure it out. A good and long-held reason to stay or to go is the call. A second good reason to stay or to go is a sense of passion a sense of energy, an unusual sense of care or burden for something. Another really interesting scene in the book of Acts um, is the apostles, these leaders of the church, trying to discern who goes where. And you know what they decide? Peter, a rough around the edges, barely qualifies to be a Jew, Jew, gets called to be a minister to the Jews. Who saw that coming? Whereas Paul, highly educated, superpowered Jew, monster, ninja Jew, gets sent to the Gentiles. Isn't that weird? Part of that is not what you expect. It's not what you expect. Part of what's going on there is Paul, his burden for the non-Jewish people. And they perceive that as some sort of validation, some sort of part of the credibility to the, you know what? This has never happened before, but we think God's calling the super Jew to cross over the boundaries and go to the non-Jews. It's a sense of passion. Don't write off what you're passionate about as an illegitimate piece of the call of God on your life or whether you should stay or you should go. I think one of the most powerful parts of the emphasis that our church and others have on discovering your top five strengths or taking your Myers-Briggs assessment, your personality kind of stuff, or what number are you in the Enneagram, or all of these kind of learn about yourself kind of experiences is it does help us at times to kind of articulate what it is we are most passionate about, what we are interested in. And if none of that works, then get underneath the table and look up and decide, okay, what is it that really makes me angry? What do I get angry about? That will reveal the same kind of thing, that passion, that thing that you'd give your life to change. Right? It's a great reason to stay or go as you're passionate about it. Especially when the passion corresponds with a third reason to stay or go, which is need a real actual need. We are so overwhelmed by the needs of our world 
that we underestimate the legitimacy of responding to a need as a real or good reason to go. In other words, certainly the words of the prophet are clear and Jesus are clear about addressing like the needs of hunger, the needs of the lonely, very strong language about visiting those in prison, taking care of the widow. In other words, if somebody's hungry, we should feed them whether we feel passionate about it or not, right? It's a need. If somebody is grieving, we should stay home and grieve with them, whether we're gifted in grief care or not. That's just responding to a need. Responding to a need is a legitimate reason to stay or to go, which takes me to the final good reason that I'll mention, and it is abuse. It is possible to be manipulated by a person or a situation's neediness, isn't it? It's possible. People can be abusive. People can take radical, um, they can take extreme advantage of your availability. Situations can be toxic. I was asking a friend of mine, why are you leaving that great job? You've been preparing for that great job for so long and now you're walking away from it? He said, it's a toxic situation. It's a toxic work environment. And I got to tell you, at first I was like, are you kidding me? Seriously, that doesn't sound very legitimate to me. And then later, one-on-one, he said, listen, the whole office is using drugs. I've struggled with that in my past. I don't want to work there. Like, it doesn't matter that it's a great job. This is not a healthy place for me to be. That kind of putting your, subjecting, what I'm trying to say is subjecting yourself to that kind of abuse, that is not, that is a, that is a good Let's see, that's not a good reason to stay. That is a legitimate reason to, to, to leave, to move. Um, my concern, whenever I teach about leaning into pain, enduring suffering, sticking with it, don't give up, face your fears, is that somebody here will be in an abusive relationship and they will hear me and they will think I should stay in this relationship. I, I never mean that. I, I, just, I never mean that. Abuse is a good reason to go um, in almost every case uh, that I can think of at this moment. Um, if refusing the promotion or the expected move is a way to protect yourself from slipping into a destructive kind of lifestyle that you're trying to stay away from, then that kind of abuse is a great reason to stay. You don't need that promotion. Right? All right. Here are three to wrap it up. Here are three not-so-good reasons to stay or go. Fear. Fear, in most cases, very effective motivator, but not super healthy, I would argue. When I find myself hesitating to call somebody back to meet somebody who wants to meet, uh, when I find myself rescheduling a conversation, it's usually because I'm afraid. It's usually because we have to talk about something that's difficult. I'm in a position where I need to confront them, and I don't want to do that. I should always push through that as a Christian because I should never be motivated by fear. When I feel God's call or God's burden to help someone in need and I hesitate because I know that it's going to end up costing me time, it's going to end up costing me money, and I'm afraid that I don't have the ability to do that, I should push through that, right? Because over and over in the Bible, we're told, you don't have to be afraid, you don't have to be afraid, you don't have to be afraid. But the reason we're given is because I am with you, says the Lord. So whether I stay or go, God is with me. I don't have to not go there because I'm afraid because he's going to be with me. Now, I'm not saying that it's not right to say, I am so afraid of going there. That's just the truth. I'm so afraid of staying there. That's fine to say that. Please be honest with how you're feeling. But I am saying it's not a good reason. Staying away from the fear, it's not a good reason. 
I need to push into that, right? Fear's not a good reason. Second not good reason to stay or to go is conflict. It's kind of related to fear. We're in a culture, this blows my mind, uh, where conflict happens all the time, and we've even made it into an entertainment form. Almost every form of entertainment that you participated in this last week has some form of conflict hardwired into it. We like it. And yet, in real life, we avoid it. We, we avoid it. Um, most of the time, when people leave a community like a church, it's because of conflict with somebody else. Conflict is not a good reason to go. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 18. If you're like, prove it to me. Matthew 18 is a great place to read about a four-step process that Jesus outlines or how to deal with conflict within the church. Matthew 18. Conflict is, instead of a reason to go, conflict's an opportunity to grow. Conflict is an um, opportunity to extend grace and to receive grace. Some of the most powerful relationships I have in our church of relationships that came this close, this close to breaking. Hard words were said. Feelings were hurt. Um, actions were misunderstood. And people disagreed with one another, including me. And yet we pressed through. And now we have this very grace-filled, respectful relationship. Conflict's not a good reason to go. Life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller if you avoid conflict as your reason for why I stay or why I go. And then a last reason. Sometimes conflict or pain or frustration lasts a long time, doesn't it? And this can be really challenging. This can wear down our resolve. It can erode our sense of calling. It can cause us to ignore legitimate needs because, oh my gosh, this is such a bad season. It's extending for so long. But I want to say that bad seasons are not good reasons to leave. I've noticed that quite a few people who leave because of a bad season, they step right into another bad season the next place they go. Friends, if you never hang in there through a bad season at work or through a bad season in marriage, there is a whole real-life skill set you'll never develop. You'll never learn how to get through a bad season. You will always be in a bad season. We are in this instant solution culture. Don't let it turn you into a person who has an inability to stick with a conflict or a challenge long enough to see the broken things be put back together and restored again. In recent weeks, several people have said to me, we're in a really bad season. And I hope, this, I hope you can hear me part of me gets really interested in the conversation at that moment because now I have some questions. What are you learning? What are you discovering about yourself in the midst of this bad season? I'm not doubting the legitimacy of the bad season at all. I'm not saying it's not bad. I'm, I'm, but I'm interested because as you stay in it, what are you thinking needs to change? Um, what is this bad season helping you see more clearly about God, about yourself? In other words, where's God in this bad season? But see, that all gets tossed out if the person is like, we're in this bad season, so we're out. No, don't do that. That is not a good reason. It's not a good reason. You are arresting your own development Most, if not all, last sentence, most, if not all, of your truly 
helpful to the world and your family and everybody in between, insights about life will come right near the end of that bad season. Most of the good you will be able to actually credibly give to the world will come from an insight that you get right at the end of that bad season. Don't bail out on it. It's not a good reason. The dawn comes, right? It's midnight, but the dawn comes in the morning. That's all I got, friends. That's nine weeks of the wisdom of stability. I hope it was helpful. I'll be here again next week. Whole new topic. <laughs> Seriously, my, my hope is that in a culture where we're constantly talking about move and change, that this really unusual uh, series of, um, of teachings on staying, on, on stability, will, man, will, will connect the fruit to the root, that your movement will be more effective and more powerful because it's, been, it's rooted in a place or a relationship or a spirituality that is committed to permanence and stability and consistency. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I pray for great clarity in the hearts and minds of these, my friends, as I, uh, as I see them and imagine them wrestling with so many issues, some of which I am aware of, and pray for grace for them, grace for me. Help us to know what to do. Should we stay or should we go? How do we address this puzzle? How do we wrestle with this problem, this challenge? Draw near to us, I pray. Open our hearts and minds to discovering your will. And may our actions, our response, be more effective and productive and holy than ever before because we've waited with you. We've stayed for a while. We've sent the roots down deep. Uh, we've gained insight and wisdom into the truth. In Jesus' name, amen.